Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Uni placements. They can be a bit crap, can't they? But for a lot of you studying, you don't have a choice. Hundreds of hours of work you got to do to become a nurse, a teacher, a social worker. The best part? You're not paid, so you're often thousands of dollars out of pocket, which is just what you need in a cost of living crisis. We're going to be getting into unpaid internships later. I know so many of you have horror experiences. We'll be hearing some of them and also potential solutions. We'll be speaking to experts about what we could be seeing here. Should you be receiving the minimum wage, at least, if you're doing a uni placement? Let's hear your workplace horror stories. But before we get to that, some AFL news. Hack. The AFL knows that during the long history of our game, there have been instances of racism and that players have been marginalised, hurt or discriminated against because of their race. And for that, we say sorry. On Triple J. Remember last year when a story came out detailing racism allegations at Hawthorne Footy Club? Look, to be honest, it's fair if you're a bit confused or maybe you don't remember because there have been so many racism scandals plaguing the AFL in recent years. This one involved allegations of mistreatment of First Nations players at Hawthorne. There was an investigation and this week the results of that investigation by the AFL were handed down and it was announced that there were no adverse findings against former officials, including coaches. So what happens now? In a bit, we're going to chat to someone who knows a fair bit about what goes on behind the scenes at some of these clubs. But first, here's Kimberly Price to bring you up to speed. And just a warning, this story mentions abortion. The AFL has launched an investigation into one of the most disturbing controversies in the history of the game. It'll go down as the family club's day of shame. Grand final week for Aussie rules has just blown up in the ugliest possible way. Last September, the AFL was rocked by another racism scandal. It all came from a leak of a review into racism at the Hawthorne Footy Club. One of the AFL's most prestigious clubs, Hawthorne, is facing disturbing allegations this morning relating to its treatment of First Nations players. Three First Nations players and their partners made allegations about their experiences with the club and they spoke to ABC Sports about it. In one case, a couple alleged club officials took the player to his house and told his partner the relationship was over and he moved out. Two players told the ABC the club asked them to change their SIM cards to get new numbers so they couldn't contact their partners. And one player said club officials asked him to call his partner and ask her to terminate her pregnancy. All the players have similar, slightly differing stories, but the common theme is that they allege club officials asked the players to separate or tried to keep the players away from their partners. I want to acknowledge that this is a really distressing day for the people who have shared their experiences. What we've seen today is a challenging, harrowing and disturbing read. The AFL set up an investigation into the claims and has been going for the past eight months. But right from the start, there's been a lot of concerns about it. The coaches involved in the allegations have said they weren't interviewed and neither were the families. The purpose of the independent panel investigation was to investigate relevant matters and make recommendations to the AFL, including as to whether any persons should be the subject of disciplinary action for breach of AFL rules and the resolution today should be viewed through that lens. At the centre of the report was former Hawthorne coach Alistair Clarkson, assistant Chris Fagan and player development manager Jason Burt. When the news broke, Clarkson's start date as the coach of North Melbourne was delayed and Fagan was stood down from his role as head coach of the Brisbane Lions for a month. 
But just two weeks ago, Clarkson took an indefinite leave from North Melbourne. Yesterday, the panel at the helm of the investigation handed down their findings to the AFL. No adverse findings have been made in the independent investigation against any of the individuals against whom allegations have been made. The complainants wish to resolve all differences with the AFL. Two of the people who shared their stories and did not participate in the AFL investigation are weighing up civil litigation claims, aka whether or not they're going to sue. The complainants agree that the allegations that they have made should not be further investigated by the independent panel. The agreement today does not preclude the complainants from taking other action or preclude the AFL from bringing a charge under AFL rules against Hawthorne Football Club. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story and we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, sorry isn't good enough when it comes to systematic racism. Actions really do speak louder than words. Another person, I listened to Gil last night. As far as I could tell, nothing was settled, but the AFL has washed its hands of it. Bit disappointing given they've delayed response to Adam Goods getting booed out of the game. Have they learnt nothing? That's another person there. Look, let me know what you think. If you're a Hawthorne fan, especially if you are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, how does this sit with you? I want to get into it a bit more now, and with us is Professor John Evans. He's Pro Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Engagement at Swinburne Uni, but John is also on Essendon Football Club's First Nations Advisory Board. Professor Evans, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You know, there'll be a lot of people who've seen a news headline saying the AFL's wrapped up its investigation into alleged racism at Hawthorne, no findings against those people uh, who were investigated, and these people will think, well, that's it then, nothing happened. Is it as simple as that? Well, no, it's not, Dave, and I think part of the reason why it's been wrapped up in the way it has is that, you know, they're on a, they're, it was going to be a difficult uh, proposition to get a result given that the original uh, investigation or the report was leaked to the press. So it was going to be very difficult for any natural justice to be obtained by anybody in the process. So I think what you see today is a combination of those sorts of uh, issues. Was there anything that AFL boss Gillan McLaughlin said that surprised you or do you back his comments? No, no, I'm not surprised. I don't think he could have really delivered much more. I think the thing for Gillan now and his, uh, the person who's going to take over for him is just how they improve the cultural citizenship of the AFL. How should we be looking at this? Obviously in a much wider context, not just Hawthorne, but as a whole at the code. Yes, I think that's, that's exactly what they should be doing, David. I think this is, this is not a problem that's, that's just with Hawthorne. We've seen in the last you know, four or five years that many clubs have, ha- have got a problem with racism and how they deal with things. So this is a whole of sport problem or issue and I think the AFL's now got to stand up and become a leader in sport and become an ally to Indigenous people and Indigenous communities in trying to solve this going forward into the future. Are the other clubs looking at these issues and talking about it a lot? I imagine you can speak a bit from your own experience. Look they are uh, and I think um, various clubs are at different stages of talking about it but I think now the uh, AFL has to become the arrowhead for change. They've got to be the one that steps forward and draws the clubs together and get people talking about this to find a way forward, you know, to find some resolutions, to become a good cultural citizen and be a good corporate citizen for Indigenous Australians. How do you do that? So what's the path forward? Like if the AFL does want to set itself up as a place where Indigenous players and their supporters feel welcomed, how do you do it? Well, first of all, the AFL and individual clubs start having conversations with their Indigenous players. 
they've got to be prepared to talk to Indigenous communities and community organisations outside, um, you know, the, the AFL club system and to start to look at a whole of sport. You can think about the, the journey of an AFL player from a kid when he's 16 or 17 right through to when he transitions to sport. So we, we need to start thinking about those sorts of issues and the, the cultural differences that exist for many Indigenous players needs to be highlighted. Do you think that AFL clubs are going to be able to win back the trust of First Nations communities? Yes, I do. I think I think there's there's some good will. I think there's good capital within clubs, but that this is this is a constant challenge. It's something that you just don't do once and walk away from. It. So it's got to be something that's worked out on a constant basis. What about looking at other codes? Is that also something the AFL could be doing and seeing how they implement uh, strategies for inclusivity? Look, I think they can, but I think, you know, in terms of the racism thing, when you go back to when the Michael Long incident occurred, the AFL certainly stepped up and, you know, showed some leadership, but it's sort of fallen back a little bit and it needs to pick up where it was then, move forward and, and do more. Because I think the AFL, you know, was has done a very good job in highlighting the contributions that Indigenous players have made. I think in the press release today, Gillan McLaughlin said Indigenous players have played in 25,000 games in the AFL. So, you know, they certainly contribute far above, uh, you know, the, the, the representation in, in the community. So I think there's plenty of goodwill there and I think there's plenty of uh, expectations on both sides to get this done. There's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done and, you know, the full scale of that we probably don't even appreciate. But how far do you think the AFL has come over the past decade, do you think? Has there been a lot of process? Like if you look back at incidents in the past, Adam Goods, how far have we come? Look, I think there has been some positive changes, but it's at a glacial pace. And this is why we need to double down our efforts to do better in the future. Um because what happens is that there's a sense of complacency. You know, we've dealt with this, we've moved on. But I think there needs to be constant interaction with players and their families and groups outside to make sure that, you know, they're, what they're doing is right and it's fit for purpose. Is it stuff that the players want to be talking about, do you think? Like, there's probably a lot of players who are like, of course we want to address these issues, but we also just want to be getting on with our sport. Look, I think there's a, that's a double-edged sword in some ways too, Dave. I think the players want to be comfortable playing the sport. That's what they're there to do. But they also need the cultural environment to, to speak up. So they don't want to be knocked down when they come forward and they say, look, I've, I've had a problem, this is what the problem is. Clubs need to have ways to resolve these internally, but not to victimise the player for, for raising issues. They need The clubs need to create the right environment for that to happen. We've been having a lot of discussions over the past couple of weeks, especially focusing on the media in terms of uh, racism and in terms of how management in, in organisations deals with this. And something that always comes up is we need better representation in higher levels of management. Uh, what about the AFL? Like, how do you see that going forward? It does help. Now, we've got some people at the AFL who've made a fantastic contribution, people like Tanya Hosh. But I imagine she's probably feeling a bit frustrated today because of her efforts haven't been taken up by the AFL. So we do need more people in influential positions so that this stuff doesn't just slide off the back. Well, look, we do appreciate your insight into this. Thank you very much, Professor John Evans from Swinburne and Essendon's First Nations Advisory Board. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Have a good day. Hack.
on Triple J. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, there is no verifiable evidence of any wrongdoing of any of the accused in this case. Another person says, my name's Shane. I'm a Wurundjeri man. This is just scratching the surface. There's such a long way to go when it comes to breaking down systemic racism. Look, time to move on. We're going to talk about student placements and I can tell you want to talk about it because the text line is exploding. Hack. It's exhausting. Can't take a day off. My body is really tired. (laughs) On Triple J. Okay, so good news. You got your uni placement sorted, your work placement. We love that. It's a bit far away though. You're going to need to travel, sort out somewhere to stay. I guess you're not going to be able to work while you're away, are you? How do you survive unpaid work placements, internships? And is it time for students to be paid? I mean, you're putting in the long hours because there's a big push for this at the moment. It's being led by unions and students themselves. Today, a whole heap protested calling for the minimum wage or anything just to get by. I want to know, have you been through this? Maybe you're on a work placement now and you're struggling. If you are... Let us know. What's the experience like? We've got so many people on the text line already. Someone says, unpaid placement cost me my job. I couldn't afford to stop working altogether, so I did both. 70-hour weeks. I ended up burning out and I had to quit my job for health reasons. Another person, I'm a nursing student. I know people who dropped out in first year because they couldn't afford to do two weeks unpaid placement, let alone the rest of the course. We get reported if we work at the same time because it's unsafe. And another person, for paramedics, placements, uniforms, for paramedic placements, sorry, uniforms cost 300 bucks. A mask fit costs $100. Fitness testing, $500. All of that, plus the cost of the placement, some of which may be hours to drive to in a regional area for 12 plus days requiring accommodation. There's so much that is angering a lot of you out there who are going through it right now or who have been it and have been through it and have really struggled. We're going to speak to some other people with some first-hand experiences soon, but first here's Miles Holbrook Walk who's been looking into it. That's why we're on strike today. That's the sound of a group of students, and as you can hear, they're not happy. So what's going on? Why are they protesting? Well, it's all got to do with work placements. No cuts! No fees! No corporate universities! Okay, so you're at uni, paying to be there, your hex debt is about to jump by 7%, and you need to work as part of your degree. But there's another thing, though. That work, you're not getting paid for it. Students are expected to essentially forego paid work uh, in order to work nine to five all week or to work only on the weekends. Brianna is doing a social work degree and she's yet to do her placements, but when she does, she'll have to do 1,000 hours and every second will be unpaid. It's a really, really difficult and untenable situation to be putting young people in, especially in a cost of living crisis. There's really no option other than to face poverty, to depend on your parents or the government, or to drop out as we're seeing massive um, dropout rates. Brianna says she was actually warned by her own lecturer about how bad things could be, especially as she's doing a double degree. If you want to have uh, another degree that will enhance your um, professional work, such as criminology for social work, as I'm doing, in my first year, our lecturer told us, you know, if you have a double degree, you essentially just die. Like there is, it's an untenable situation to be put in. 
She also reckons it's no coincidence these degrees that require you to do unpaid work often have a lot more women working in them too. Social work, education, nursing and so many of these other industries are highly feminised, which means they have a huge female majority. This, you know, may have a correlation with why they're such historically exploited workforces. Indigo knows all about the struggles. She's currently studying to be a midwife. I'll have a full week of classes and placement, and then on the weekend I have to work as well, so you don't really get much time to, like, do anything other than that. So it's pretty intense. I'm currently just making it by, like, on what I'm earning and then having to dip into my savings to live. So it's kind of upsetting. You know, at the end of it, I'm going to have, like, a massive student loan that I need to pay off as well. She says there's also a real risk that you have people burn out early in their career in a health sector that already has massive shortages. Have major staff shortages in midwifery and nursing and there really needs to be incentives for people to go into the profession. Unions New South Wales have done some number crunching and they think students doing social work and education degrees are doing about $21,000 of unpaid work. They argue if you look at the number of people finishing these same courses, it shows some people are burning out before they finish. Mark Morey, Secretary of Unions New South Wales, says the federal government and universities need to step up and begin paying people doing these placements the minimum wage in that industry. He reckons it'd actually make business sense too, because it would help stop students walking away from these industries, which all need more workers. We've got universities making billion dollar profits. Uh, We've got the government taxing them for their subjects through HECS. Both those organisations should be contributing to supporting these young people uh, while they're doing these subjects. Hack on Triple J. Miles Holbrook-Walk reporting there from Darwin. And look, we did ask to speak to a few people about this. Education Minister Jason Clare wasn't available, but sent us through a statement, said, look, the Australian Universities Accord is looking at a range of important issues, including student placements. And there's also the Teacher Education Expert Panel, and they're looking at practical experience for teachers and how that can be improved. Universities Australia as well, we hit them up. They said... These are important discussions to be had and we need to be looking at models for teachers and also nursing, but there's not a whole bunch at this point. I want to go to some more messages. Someone says on the text line, a thousand hours of social work placement is outrageous and my bank account is struggling after only 500 hours. Another person, my mum couldn't finish her degree because she was a single mum and couldn't afford placement time away from work. And that was before any of the cost of living pressures back in 2018. And Tyler says, I took a 70-day placement as part of a social work degree. I was forced to move cities to make this financially viable. I moved in with my parents for 12 months to save. We've got Brianna on the line now. Hey, Brianna, what's been your experience? Hi, um, so I'm on permission to teach due to the shortage of teachers in Queensland Mm -hmm. and I've been doing that for the last sort of two years of my degree. During my most recent prac, I didn't get paid to do the same job that I had been doing for about a year and a half at that point. So um, that was quite difficult, but to make it worse, I was diagnosed with cancer during my prac Mm -hmm. and even that 
wasn't enough to allow me to be paid during the six-week block. So I didn't have to work a second job to have an income while I was going through that diagnosis and trying to do that prac and complete my studies at the same time. So. Oh, Brianna, that's just the worst-case scenario. It's horrible. I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, um, a lot of people are backing up exactly what you're saying. It's just such a struggle. Hey, thanks so much for calling up. We've got Jess on the line uh, as well. Jess, what's your experience? Hey, mate. Um, so my experience, thankfully, I've graduated now and I'm two years post-grad, but um, at the time I was an enrolled nurse and I had to keep all of my part-time hours on top of my unpaid placement and I had to pick up a job at the bar and I was basically scrounging for food, getting half-priced meals, getting whatever was left in the fridge at the hospitals or at the bar. And I was basically putting myself second and burning myself out. In my first year of my grad year, I almost had to tap out because I'd burnt myself out. It's so, so much working three jobs that I almost had to give up my career. I just worked so hard for. Nah, Jess, I can hear. It's so upsetting <laughs> as well because that's the time when you need to be firing on all cylinders, right? You need to be showing people you're ready to work, you've got the energy and stuff, and you're exhausted before you even start your career. It doesn't make sense. Hey, Jess, thanks so much for calling up. Uh, we've got some other people to unpack this with now. I've got two people. First, Isaac Wattenberg, co-founder of Students Against Placement Poverty. Hey, Isaac, thanks so much for coming in and speaking with us. Hey, mate, thanks for having me on. It's been a, um, it's been a pretty busy day for you. You've been protesting and doing a whole bunch of stuff. How's it been? Yeah, it's been a really big day. Uh, started off at 8am at UNSW on the picket lines. We had some social work and education students walk off of placement in support with the university teachers who are going on strike today. And uh, lots of interviews and now I'm here. Yeah, now you're here and you're seeing so many of your peers also with their experiences. It shows that it's a lot bigger than the protests that you had today. Yeah. There's people around the country. We've also got Christine Morley, a professor of social work at Queensland University of Technology. Hey, Christine, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. We'll get to some questions for you later because you have been researching this. I want to ask you, though, first, Isaac, how are you getting by? Like, what's your situation? So... I'm, my work was not willing to keep me on during my placement uh, because they required at least four days a week. So I had to actually drop my work as a result of it. My other option looking for alternative jobs was working three days a week on top of the four days of placement I already do, which would have had me at seven days a week for almost six months straight. Uh, now... I just live off of youth allowance and it's not enough to even pay my rent. Wow. So I have to rely on my partner who is on a disability pension to pay for most of our rent and food. Uh, so it's put me in a situation where, yeah, we're living off of a disability pension between two people basically. And I mean, you're facing all of the same cost of living pressures everyone else is facing. Our students around the country, young people around the country. Have you had like rent increases, stuff like that? Yeah, my rent went up by $160 a fortnight oh. uh, about a month ago. Uh, so right in the middle of my placement. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my youth allowance didn't go up nearly that much. Neither did my partner's pension. So it's, it's left us in like genuine poverty. How hard is it to get by every day at the moment? Um, very difficult. I often feel quite stressed out just adding, you know, $10 onto my Opal card so I can get to and from placement. Uh, I have to find myself like cutting out on just going outside to do things and engage with the world because I don't have the money to do that anymore. Yeah. So, you know, I just spend 
all my time working and then sitting at home and trying to save as much money as possible. It's so rough, um, Isaac. We've got Professor Christine Morley still with us. Uh, Christine, you've done a fair bit of research on this. I'm guessing it's not a surprise to you, any of this. What did your research find? Very similar comments to what you've heard, you know, from students now. And it's even more incredible, isn't it, that they're managing to organise to protest, um, you know, the conditions given the hardship that they're experiencing. Uh, We found that, you know, more than 60% had lost three quarters of their their wage when they'd had to give up work for placement. 25% had lost their entire income. Students are telling us they're feeling exploited, being regularly used to fill labour shortages in organisations that aren't adequately funded or staffed. They're going without, um, you know, they're losing huge money. Uh, 96% said that they didn't have money for food and they are rationing petrol to go to placement or, you know, choosing between public transport, petrol and food, Um, disconnecting their phone, their internet, can't afford their bills, giving up rental properties, moving in with parents, losing independence, going into massive debt. Um, And of course, as you mentioned, you know, placements actually cost money too. So, transport, parking, clothing. Um, One person talked about, you know, because she's um, uh, got children and normally at home with those children, um, racking up an extra $6,000 in um, childcare expenses while she's, you know, essentially paying university uh, fees to do this unpaid work. Yeah, I mean, and also the mental health cost as well, Christine. Like, it's not all about the financial toll. No, that's right. I mean, the mental health costs have been profound and that that was borne out in the data as well. Um, You know, people are just basically saying that their mental health is decimated. They don't know how they're going to cope, Um, you know, especially when they just survived one placement and then to have to gear up and prepare to do another 500 hours. Um, You know, the the notion that people are burning out before they graduate um, is is, um, quite common. And 80% of students in our survey said that they had known students who had had to defer or drop out of their studies. We've got so many messages coming through. Someone says, I'm doing a master's in clinical psychology. It's a two-year program and each year we do 40 weeks of unpaid placement. A master's is now a requirement to become a psychologist. For my cohort, only three of us can work because we're so time poor. All of us have had weeks where we can't afford to eat. Another person says, I'm, you know, this convo on placement poverty is long overdue. During my teacher training, my job stopped giving me casual hours. I was so privileged to have had savings and a partner so I could get by, bring on the minimum wage at the very least. Professor Morley, I wanted to ask you, like, there's a lot of people saying these are the issues. What's the solution here? Yeah, well, ideally, um, placements would be paid by government. My preferred model would be that government actually pays the organisations who host the students to pay those students for the hours that they do. And that would increase the capacity of those organisations to offer services, as well as resulting in higher quality placement offerings and address the placement shortage issue um, as well. So that that strategy could solve actually a number of, of problems. But alternatively, government could fund Um, universities to pay students a bursary that is equivalent to a job um, seeker um, payment, for example, or Services Australia could pay um, uh, students, um, you know, who are doing placements, um, provided that it's not means tested. Otherwise, it doesn't address the issue of unpaid work. 
Isaac, can I go back to you now? Have you ever thought about giving up studying because you just can't afford it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many a times before I actually went on placement, you know, this is something that I've lost sleep about. How am I going to feed myself and pay my rent while I'm trying to finish my degree? Uh, and I've thought about, you know, quitting many times during my placement because it's a real shock to go into absolute poverty and then pay, you know, three to four thousand dollars in hex debt uh, just so I can get a qualification and I'm already feeling exhausted and burnt out. Is it a big discussion that you're having with your friends at the moment? Is like hostel living the main thing you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I have friends who they do have to do all the things that were listed, like they have to ration food or ration petrol. Um, and they're often doing real work at their placements. They're doing the same job that case managers and social workers and teachers are already doing, so they're just working for free. We've got so many more messages coming through. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, quickly, Christine Morley, do you have hope about the university's accord that we could see some real action here later this year? I do. I've got really high hopes for the university's accord. It's an opportunity to address the issues in higher education in a way that doesn't produce further inequality and hardship um, and to really deeply consider the nexus between universities, service providers, accreditation bodies and students and how that can best work um, to have a high quality workforce into the future and a workforce that is made up of diverse groups rather than just an elite few students who can afford to study without working. Well, hey, we appreciate uh, both of your insights into this. Professor Christine Morley from QUT, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple J. This is a Triple J podcast.